You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Bill Janeway, who is on the Faculty of Economics at Cambridge University, also the co-founder of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. He is a legendary venture capital investor and also the author of Doing Capitalism in the Innovation Age, which is in its second edition. And Bill, it just kind of came out, I think the first edition is right after the global financial crisis. And the second edition has, it hasn't shown its age. I have to say that a lot of the insights that were in the book are, I think, even more important for us today. I appreciate you joining me today. Welcome, Bill. I'm delighted to be with you, Greg. The second edition essentially was extended and revised to take account of the political consequences of the global financial crisis. I like to say it it was extended and revised to take account of Trump and Brexit. But it also, both versions of the book, grew out of the 35-year sabbatical I spent away from Cambridge, where I got my doctorate a long time ago, as a working venture capitalist, particularly involved in the transformation of information technology into enabling the internet to become the environment in which we live, die, do business, interact in many ways. And I think you're, you're a true practitioner academic, and I say that as a, as a good thing, because too often the academy, we can get so far removed from what's happening in the field that we develop models that are unrecognizable when you try to see them out in reality. And part of what we're going to talk about is kind of the removal of academic economics from what we might call reality. But you introduced this thing, which you call the three-player game. That's sort of the focus of, of the book. And I think that Probably your ideas about the three-player game, they're not new thoughts. These were things that you were thinking about back when you were in graduate school and you had gone off to Cambridge and the old Cambridge offered a, a way of thinking which is very different from the new Cambridge or from American academia. And when you came out of that system and tried to get academic work, you were told that maybe economics wasn't the place for you. Maybe you should be doing history or something else. To be fair, Greg, to be fair to myself, as well as to the faculties that I interviewed with 50 years ago, there were jobs everywhere. The American graduate schools were going through the enormous expansion generated by the mission-driven American states, massive investment in higher education that followed the Sputnik embarrassment, and that led to, among other things, the creation of DARPA. It wasn't that there weren't jobs available. I think I also say in the book that I found I was incapable of teaching, of polluting the brains of young, energetic, creative, curious students with the new Cambridge MIT's version of Keynesian economics. I like to refer to myself as a paleo-Keynesian in that, like George Akerlof, whom I revere, Janet Yellen's husband for the uninitiated, George Nobel Prize winner, 20 years ago in economics, the title of his inaugural lecture as Nobel Prize winner was Behavioral Macroeconomics. 
in a direct line, which he explicitly states from Keynes's general theory, where the micro foundations are not the micro foundations of the intertemporally omniscient, rational, maximizing representative agent, but on the contrary, of real human beings, investors, consumers, entrepreneurs making decisions under radical uncertainty. The concept of the three-player game owed a great deal to Keynes in taking the radical uncertainty of investing in all cases, but especially at the technological frontier, taking that seriously. But it also grew out of my own experience. When I was investing in infrastructure software, the software that transformed the internet, I realized that I and all of my colleagues and the entrepreneurs we were backing were dancing on a platform that had been constructed by the United States Department of Defense over the previous generation, from the end of World War II until the 1970s, when their investment in upstream science and their role as the first customer for computers, for silicon chips, for software, pulled all of the sources of what combined to make the digital revolution, accelerated their transition down the learning curve to low-cost, reliable, available for commercial exploitation by startups funding by venture capitalists. So that was one pillar of the three-player game. And then, and this does bridge back to Cambridge, I wrote my PhD thesis on 1929 to 31. So in 1999, I'd seen that movie before. I'm very proud of having constructed, with the help of a colleague at Cambridge, a chart that puts the stock price from 1926 to 1932 of Radio Corporation of America, RCA, the iconic high-tech company of the great 1920s bull market, and maps that against the two software companies, Veritas Software and BEA Systems, that I played a central role in funding and building in the middle 1990s. And of course, the stock charts are identical. A four-year buildup to an absolutely unsustainable bubble peak. Bubbles could take the escalator on the way up, and then a 12-month radical decline taking the elevator on the way down. So I'm pleased to say that it at Warburg Pincus, we spent 99 and 2000 liquidating my portfolio into the bubble. And that, for me, rendered financial speculation as the second pillar noted, as the book spent a good deal of time addressing in the historical context, that for 500 years, bubbles, financial bubbles, and wherever assets are traded in open markets, financial bubbles can be observed. But not all bubbles are the same. You can divide them up according to, first, the extent to which they're leveraged, that they take place in credit markets, where when they burst, as they always do, the damage they cause can go systemic-wide, as it did in 2008, as it did in 1929. But when they're not funded by credit, when they're not excessively leveraged, and they focus occasionally on one of those transformational technologies, railways in Britain in the 1830s and 40s, in the US in the 1850s, electrification and the motor car in the 1920s. And of course, 
computing, the internet, the applications generated therefrom in the 1990s. You have what I call a productive bubble, and that's the, the second pillar. And then the third, in effect, passive recipient of the impact of mission-driven state investments amplified by financial speculation is the ordinary market economy, which right now is going through an assault from the higher powers known as thunderstorms. The market economy where people work and buy food and buy non-essentials and interact conventionally in Adam Smith's world, that's the third player in the game. But it's the passive one. It's the passive one which is transformed and has been transformed repeatedly over the last 250 years. The first industrial revolution, the second mass production industrial revolution, and then the digital revolution. And perhaps we may optimistically anticipate the next revolution, the green revolution, in response to climate change. Well, of course, your other main inspiration is, is Schumpeter, and we'll have to talk a, a bit about these influences. But I think you argue that what's new is old, and when we want to go back and understand economics, it sometimes helps to go back and read it in, in the original, which a lot of economists don't do. But you described how what Keynes had to say had been lost in, in the fog. You talk about Keynes becoming domesticated. You talk about the economics of Keynes as opposed to Keynesian economics and the Samuelsonian synthesis. So tell us a bit about that when you came to the States and brought some of these Keynesian ideas with you when you came back from Cambridge. What was the main distinction between the kind of economics of Keynes that you learned and the kind of Keynesian economics that, that everyone had to learn in school for the last 50 years? The great Paul Samuelson and Bob Solo at MIT did was a, indeed, they called it the neoclassical synthesis. From the perspective of old Cambridge and people like Joan Robinson and Pierre Estrafa and Richard Kahn, the author of The Multiplier, who was my PhD supervisor, what they saw Samuelson doing was saying, okay, thanks to Keynes, we understand about effective demand. We have a macroeconomics and we have a policy toolkit through which we can assure that the absolute fundamental necessity, theoretical necessity, for neoclassical economics is achieved and maintained, the full employment of all resources. Once we have dealt at the macro level with the potential for a shortfall and therefore inefficient allocation, we can go back to the marginalist neoclassical model where all resources are not only fully employed, but they're efficiently employed. That was the economics I had a real problem with because deep under Keynes, while in the general theory, he does tip his hat to that notion. But again and again in the great work, there are these references, especially when he's talking about the financial markets, to understanding that's not how decisions are made. Decisions are not made on the basis of knowing what the net present value future cash flows are going to be. The secondary market 
in financial assets prices the primary market for investment goods, which in turn, investment in which is the driving force of the macro economy. There's nothing automatic about it. So with that in mind, then the next step, I was already out of the academy by then. The next step came from Chicago, and it was to say there's a hole in MIT's macroeconomics. There's no linkage to the dominant microeconomic model of that intertemporally maximizing rational agent. But when Chicago took it to what was a self-destructive extreme, and to be fair, I have to say that the new Keynesian or the saltwater version of macro versus the freshwater version were co-conspirators in what I believe was a crime against not just Keynes, that's trivial, a crime against society. And that was to build macroeconomic models with no financial system. Core to Keynes, core to the economics of Keynes is the interaction between what goes on in financial markets and the financial system more broadly and what goes on in the real economy, both at the macro and the micro levels. That was excluded such that in 2008, the models which dominated, the dynamic, stochastic, general equilibrium, macro models, were literally by construction. It wasn't that they couldn't forecast a crash. By construction, they could not conceive of a financial crisis producing an economic or threatening an economic collapse. Now, along the way, during my that 35-year sabbatical, I did encounter one economist, at the time a prophet without honor, who had been shipped out of New Cambridge, where his PhD supervisor was none other than Schumpeter, to St. Louis named Hyman Minsky. And completely by coincidence, I met Minsky. We had dinner together sometime in the mid-late 1980s. And I just resonated with his writings, with his conversation. When he retired from Washington University and moved east and found a home at the Levy Institute in Bard, I gave papers there. And that was where I actually began to develop the, the theoretical line of thought, which informs my book and my course at Cambridge and everything I write about economics today, and in particular about the economics of innovation. So that's where I reconnected, if you like, with Keynes in the trenches. Look, we've seen a huge rise in what we call behavioral economics or, or behavioral finance. And I think your main point is that the ambitions are a little too modest, right? So behavioral economics is oftentimes studying special cases. It's oftentimes studying decision-making at the individual level. And it's often seen as an exception to the rule of the uh, uh, kind of representative agent who is generally rational. I think you're trying to make a much deeper claim which is that actors, particularly in financial markets, are operating under what you call ontological uncertainty. And that, that efficiency not only is something which is 
probably unattainable in the way that the economists claim it could be attained, but it's actually undesirable right? In, in many ways, and that efficiency is the enemy of innovation. You're both making a positive claim about how people make decisions in financial markets, and you're also making something of a normative claim that this is what we want people to be like, at least within certain settings. I actually say they're, they're really both positive claims because the first, I draw on a huge amount of literature. And by the way, I don't think behavioral economics and behavioral finance anymore is marginal. I think it's really central. You're just you know reading articles just in the AER and the Journal of Finance and just reviewing. I get my weekly dose, whether I need it or not of something like 15 to 25 National Bureau of Economic Research working papers that match my keywords. And you can guess what my keywords are. The flow, I, I, I just don't see papers that either theoretically or empirically in trying to specify a model through which to interrogate data rely on a rational representative agent. Now in macro, it's all about Hank models. I think that's a, a stepping stone heterogeneous agent New Keynesian models, which incorporate, quote, financial frictions. I would say that the frictions are actually central to the engine uh, that is driving the economy. But I see, and, and it's not just prospect theory in Kahneman and Tversky. There's a huge increase in work on what you might call network economics, not just the network externalities that platform companies like Google and Amazon can generate and benefit from, or Facebook, but it's also the manner in which individual decisions are clearly not, as Gary Becker asserted, preferences are not fixed irretrievably once and for all, and we can take that for granted in modeling the behavior of the rational agent. On the contrary, they are malleable, they are manipulable, and we've got a huge array of empiric work, empirical work that is showing exactly how that happened, both in the digital and in the atomic world. So I think economics is going through a, at least a generation long, pretty fundamental reconsideration that goes with, of course, two things. One, a major observable shift from theoretical to empirical work. Second, the existence and the, uh, I guess what I would say, learning by doing of how to deal with data at the scale, the pervasiveness, the scope of what's now available. I think one of the most interesting things, I think it's something that economists can now share, not as imperialists of the rational choice theoretic, but as practitioners of data analysis with the other social sciences that are also inundated with data, the movement towards causal explanation, getting beyond correlation, recognizing that the more data you have, the greater the propensity to generate false correlations. The availability of correlations is a power function of the amount of data you have. This is, of course, particularly relevant to the machine learning world, where one of the great memes I've heard in the last couple of years is that machine learning is money laundering for bias. 
it takes bias in the data and translates it into objective truth. So I think there's a, a great role, an ongoing role for this kind of economics that indeed begins and is able to deal with is a, you know, part of what happened to economics and the economics that you decry and that I share in, in denigrating was that because A, there wasn't very much data and B, there wasn't really much experience in dealing with what data there was. Then you could make the kind of Friedmanite abstractions and say, if you produce a theory, even if it's radically unrealistic, it, it makes effective, you know, meaningful predictions, then who cares? Well, of course, the problem with Friedman's models were that the predictions were terrible. <laughs> and that's what happened to monetarism. But I do think that the transformation, I won't call it a revolution, the transformation in economic practice is profound, deep, pervasive, and ongoing. And that's where I certainly have worked to contribute both directly, but also indirectly through the Institute for New Economic Thinking, through my engagement with Cambridge University, where indeed I was attracted back to it because of where I'd come from. But it just happened that in 2008, Cambridge was one of the places, by no means the only one, where the impact of the global financial crisis was read not as a threat, as, for example, Eugene Fama read it, but rather as an historic opportunity. And that's been enormously fun. It's been rejuvenating intellectually, and I would also say socially, in being engaged in this grand effort. Well, what's interesting about financial theory is the, the impact that it has on financial markets, right? So it's not just that financial theorists are learning from the markets, but the markets are responding to the developments in theory. And when you entered the Wall Street, Back in the day, this was the era of, of fixed commissions and partnerships operating as intermediaries in the, in the exchange. And all that was ripped up and, and replaced. And we've seen these radical transformations. And in part, it was driven by financial theory and economic theory. And you describe this transition as one where transactional efficiency was increased, but it may have come at the expense of informational efficiency. Could you describe what that means and what you observed? Right. Well, first of all, going way back to the 1970s, I would certainly not make a defensive case for the Wall Street of 1970. It was unbelievably inefficient transactionally. It was populated by people who'd all gone to school together. It was nepotistic to a degree. It was sexist, racist, all of the above, it was relatively very small. And by and large, it was extremely risk averse. The people who ran the firms that mattered were children of the depression, many of whom still thought that after the artificial expansion of demand because of World War II that was then renewed because of Korea, we were all going back to depression. So it was very conservative. But it was the case that within that world, there were some game-changing players who were innovating along multiple dimensions. One of the dimensions was that in competing for the relatively small pool of brokerage commissions that were indeed fixed, when you couldn't compete on price, maybe you could compete by being smart. 
So the three guys who founded Donaldson, Lufkin, and Jenret in the 50s came up with this great idea. We are going to generate really deep investment research on companies in the spirit of Ben Graham and produce a basis for gaining business because we help our investors make better investment decisions. That's different from getting money because you gave somebody a job or because you'd all been to St. Grottle sex together. At the other extreme, you had some very smart, driven people. Uh, oh, and by the way, I should say that Wall Street was religiously, was as divided as the difference between the Catholic Youth Organization and the Christian YMCA. You had Merrill Lynch was Irish, the army of we the people that addressed the retail customers across their network of brokerage offices across the country. The top investment banking firms, Morgan Stanley, Kidder Peabody, these were old WASP firms. They had allowed one Jewish firm in, Kunlo, into the inner circle. They allocated capital to business. That was their job and provided strategic guidance to senior management. And then there were these newcomers. Well, Goldman Sachs wasn't a newcomer, but it was reinvented because it had almost gone bust in 29. It had almost been indicted. It had been a leader in sponsoring irresponsible speculation. And it spent a generation rebuilding its reputation and positioning itself to compete with the brand new firm, Solomon Brothers, for doing something that nobody had thought would ever be necessary. Being prepared to put capital on the desk to take institutional investors' blocks and distribute them to the retail market or distribute them to the stock market over time. And it really was the rise of institutional investors that transformed Wall Street. It was the rise of pension funds, mutual funds, much riskier, uh, much more uh, entrepreneurial. Then hedge funds really weren't much of an issue. But they said, why are we paying these brokerage commissions? This is ridiculous. Why don't we deal direct with the market? We don't have to go through these brokers. We can deal with Goldman Sachs and Solomon Brothers. And then the big companies, the great companies started saying, wait a second, we have excess cash and we have no other people in our milieu who need short-term cash. Why don't we create a commercial paper market? without Wall Street. Well, of course, Wall Street came in, but it came in at much lower rates. This is what drove the elimination of the stock market monopoly, the movement towards negotiated rates set by the buy side of the market, the institutional investors, not the sell side, the brokerage firms. In all of that, however, that DLJ idea was a really powerful one. And it happened that the firm I stumbled into, because I'd known the founder of the firm as a boy, he's one of my heroes, he's in some ways a hero of the book, man with an extraordinary name, Ferdinand Eberstadt, who was a lawyer turned investment banker, and who had created in the 30s, the first mutual fund exclusively focused on the science-based industries, 
of which the chemical industry was the first. So his fund was called Chemical Fund. During World War II, as part of the old-fashioned Wall Street-Washington partnership, for two years, he ran the industrial mobilization for World War II and then returned to Wall Street and was an iconic but very low-profile figure. And his firm that I joined was one of these private partnerships. But its central asset were a set of young people, mostly quite young, focused on understanding the internal dynamics of the science-based, the technologically innovative industries and the companies that populated them. And that was my path to venture capital, but it was also a path towards understanding that any kind of economics that did not centrally, as Keynes did, include the dynamics of the financial system of the financial markets was bound to be empirically inadequate and theoretically barren. And that process then, as I say, punctuated by building this relationship with Hyminsky, uh, is really kind of the, the central drama of my life from the age of 28 to 68. Yeah. I think that the idea that the financial markets are separate from the real economy is totally implausible. But some people think about it that way, and they think that financial markets are simply observing the real economy and then pricing elements of the real economy. But it's the financial markets that determine who gets funded and who doesn't get funded and which companies grow and which companies don't grow. And it, it's implausible anyone would think that these things are separate from one another. Greg, this, this is what takes us right back to Keynes. Takes us right back to the famous chapter 12 in Keynes in particular. Because you can ignore the financial markets if you do two things. One, you think of money as a veil, which simply is a kind of numeraire for indexing real transactions. And second, you assume that the market always prices financial assets in line with their real economic fundamentals, the net present value of their future cash flows, and that the real world, the real economy's investment decisions in real assets reflect exactly that same calculation. If you do that, you make that gigantic in my view, self-destructive and absurd leap of faith, then you can say the financial markets don't matter. The body of empirical evidence against either of those propositions is so overwhelming. And the reality from the depression which motivated Keynes through the great financial crisis of 2008, which has motivated the reconstruction of economics from micro to macro, it's clear that is that though the power of those assumptions is that they make life easy for the theoretical economist. They simply remove from consideration by construction all the really interesting stuff. So you remove, you know, the Keynesian beauty contest as people who know, and this is key. It's not that I don't know enough. And this is George Soros's reflexivity. I know not only do I not know enough to make the right decision, but I know that you don't know enough either. And I know that we're each going to watch each other because we might know a little bit more. 
than the other one. That's why wherever you have financial markets, you'll have hurting behavior, you'll have momentum investing, and sooner or later, bubbles will emerge and crash. And that will all feed back because, as I say, it's the financial markets that price the assets in the real economy. There's a great paragraph in Keynes in which he anticipates simultaneously in one paragraph the venture capital industry and the IPO market on the one hand, and on the other hand, the buyout business, the LBO business, in which he says, makes no sense to start a new business if you can buy an existing one for less capital than it would take to build a new one. And on the other hand, it makes every sense to start a new business if you're going to be able, or you think you're going to be able, to float it off to the public at a substantially higher value. He did that in 1935-6 when he was writing the general theory. That's why I keep telling my students there's a reason why Keynes had the impact he had, and it wasn't just because he said uh, there's room for the government to do something about mass unemployment. Well, I was wondering if you could maybe explain why it is that private venture money exploded when it did. And and I know, you know, Steve Blank has a story about how the, the ground had to be laid by government investment initially to jumpstart some of these these industries. But we didn't see that happen in, in previous waves of, I mean, I guess we did to the extent in the railroad bubble. I think you talk about that. So there's certainly government involvement in, in a lot of these waves. But some of the earlier attempts at venture capital that were primarily on the East Coast in the 1940s and, and 50s, they didn't really scale as well as the, the venture capital scaled later on, on the West Coast. And I think you at Warburg Pincus were sitting at the place where you know that migration happened. So why is it that venture capital took so long to really take off when the economics of financing innovation, the limited partnership model, I mean, it had been around for centuries, right? So what took so long and what was the trigger? You're absolutely right, Greg, to continue push back into trying to understand the you know, where we came from. How did this world come to be the way it is? One of my comments about the young geniuses who are continuously transforming the world, whether it's through analog or digital technologies, know that they're creating a new world and therefore they don't feel they have to spend any time learning how the world that they're disrupting came to exist until it bites them in the ass. Well, with respect to venture capital, there is a long history of risk equity being invested in high-risk, high-return projects. Now, there's a wonderful book by Tom Nichols of the Harvard Business School, VC and American History. He starts with the whaling expeditions, right? Absolutely. And the whaling industry was funded by agents who effectively were venture capitalists on a project-by-project basis. They raised money from the New England families, whose money in turn had come out of textiles and water mills and that sort of thing, and and local banks. And they invested it selectively. They tried to be selective in whaling voyages. And they showed two statistical, Nicholas comes up with two fabulous statistical stylized facts, which actually correspond exactly to two of the stylized statistical facts of modern venture capital. One is enormous skew in the returns. A few of those agents 
were really successful. A few of those voyages produced stupendous returns. Many of them didn't return the money. And in some cases, quite a few of them didn't return the ships, not just the Essex that was sunk by the big whale that became the model for Moby Dick. The second fact was that there was persistence in those returns. Some agents were just better than others, repeatedly. Those two statistical facts characterize the cross-section and the time series of venture capital returns since 1980, demonstrated again and again by very good data, data not produced by the venture capitalists, but by their limited partners. So before roughly 1975, when the National Venture Capital Association was established, you have many examples of what you would now call angel or super angel investors. Naomi Lamoureux wrote many great works of economic history. One of them is called Insider Lending and how the banking, the early banks in New England funded the families, members who started up mills because there was a trust relationship that helped reduce the agency risk between the, the capitalist and the entrepreneur. Going back to the 1920s or even earlier, you know, Henry Ford had two angel investors. They happened to be brothers named Dodge, and they happened to have a really a risk-averse attitude as investors that Henry Ford- They sued Henry Ford to get their money back. They sued Henry Ford to distribute the accumulated reserves that he built up. They sued him in 1916. He was accumulating the reserves to reinvest in the company and particularly to move from the historic automation of Highland Park into the unbelievable integrated industrial complex known as the Rouge, the River Rouge complex. So what did Henry Ford do? Much, much to his, I should say, overcoming every prejudice he had, including his extreme anti-Semitism, he borrowed enough money to buy out the Dodge brothers, own 100% of his company, and never go to Wall Street again. But he would never have gotten off the ground without the money that the Dodge brothers had given him. Before World War II, individuals of wealth, Lawrence Rockefeller was an example. Lawrence Rockefeller was the venture capitalist behind Eastern Airlines, one of the very first airlines that got off the ground without a corporate sponsor. United Airlines was basically started by the Boeing company. After the war, there's a paper which I can't call to mind right now, but which investigates the term venture capital. Where did that come from? It was a common term in use before, even before World War II. But of course, it was General Dorio who first, out of the MIT intellectual institutional complex, set about trying to construct an instrument, an institution that would pursue this professionally. He had a terrible time raising money. He did not have a great record. Wasn't he publicly traded? It was indeed. It was a, co a corporation. It was a corporation. It did make one unbelievable investment, which was in Digital Equipment Corporation, a spin out from MIT, which returned you know, multiples of the money invested across the entire fund. And by 1970, you began to see some examples there was still a great deal of, of experimentation about 
First, what's the mission? And second, what's the institutional framework? Is the mission to invest in technological frontier startups? Arthur Rock thought it was. As an investment banker, he had put the money together from, he didn't put the money together, he found the funder in the form of Sherman Fairchild for the traitorous eight who walked out on William Shockley from Shockley Semiconductor, which happened to be based in what is now Silicon Valley for the reason that Shockley, who was a monster of a man, as well as another anti-Semite, wanted to live near his mother. That's why Shockley moved from Bell Labs to south of San Francisco. Uh, Rock, an investment banker, put the deal together with Sherman Fairchild that created Fairchild. And then when the founders of Fairchild found that they really wanted their own independence, apart from what was essentially a camera company, Fairchild Instruments, he then, acting as a venture capitalist, raised the money to start Intel. That was in the late 1960s. You began to have professional partnerships. AR&D spawned a venture capital firm called Greylock Capital goes back to the 60s. It's been through three generations of leadership. Around Boston, around Route 128, there was a nexus of venture capital firms, professional, dedicated venture capital firms who were beginning to focus on the um, limited partnership form and the two and 20 compensation system. But as late as 1970, there was a guy, in, this also gets back to what's the mission of these investors, because it's not necessarily all about commercializing new technology, most of which originally comes out of government funded research. In general, there was another thread, which was the public market is highly variable as to how it values assets. And and the public market spillover of its variability means that it is possible to find undervalued assets that are undermanaged, underdirected. And in the post-war era, you had firms like Dyson Kistner Moran. Nobody remembers them anymore. But it was a long-term holding company where they would provide capital to private businesses bring them into a holding company structure, provide senior management, have a much lower cost of capital. The firm of Loeb Rhodes, one of the several Loeb-related families like Kuhn Loeb, Loeb Rhodes had a business in buyouts before they were buyouts. Very low cost, low priced, low leveraged buyouts of private businesses. And that was all within the same rubric. Heiser's vehicle in Chicago was a corporation with two classes of stock, a preferred stock and a common stock. The investors got the common stock. The limited partners got a preferred stock, which obviously gave them seniority and shared in the profits. So it became a kind of vehicle for two and 20. When Warburg Pincus was founded, as well, raised its first fund in 1971 through Solomon Brothers, it was $41 million, as Lionel Pincus used to say to anyone who would listen, more money than we ever thought existed in the world. That was a corporation. Now, in terms of the performance metrics, unfortunately, as a corporation, it took all the money down on day one and then spent five years very slowly investing it as the stock market reached 
a thousand and then began its long slide. And fortunately, they had enough capital left to be active investors, including in public companies at the bottom in 1975. Your audience will not believe me when I tell them where the Dow Jones Industrial Average bottomed in 1975. 570. Five, that's not 5,700. It's not 57,000. 570. It's a great time to be buying common stocks. So you had a spectrum of risk, technological innovation, orientation, and this new instrumental model. But you also had very limited access to capital. Most of the money came from high net worth individuals or rich families. The Rockefeller family office was a pioneer. I mentioned Lawrence Rockefeller. He was the pioneer. J.H. Whitney was the Whitney fortune. Benno Schmidt built a primary lead venture investor in New York out of the family money of Whitney. The Greylock money originally came from the Watson family of IBM, who backed Bill Elfers and his team out of AR&D to start a new venture firm. Fiduciaries, the trustees of institutions, were constrained, first by common law, the prudent man doctrine. You must manage the money that you're responsible for as a prudent man would manage his, always his, own resources. And also by the Investment Company Act of 1940, which, by the way, Ferdinand Eberstadt had been the author, which constrained what mutual funds could do and particularly not invest in private deals. So in 1979-80, the transformational event took place in Washington when a team out of New York, a mixed team of investors and lawyers, Lionel Pincus was one of them, founder of Warburg Pincus, convinced the authorities that the rules of the Employment, Retirement, and Security Act, ERISA, should be modified. The prudent man rule should be modified to allow a portion of funds in held in trust, pension funds, of course, above all, to be invested without regard to the prudent man rule. That happened two years before Volcker broke the back of inflation. The market began to recover. In 1982, the IPO market opened up for the first time since the Yom Kippur War. You could name the companies that went public between 1973 and 1982. There were some great companies. One was Apple Computer, another was Genentech, and the third was Federal Express. The one that people would forget is Tandem Computer. But that accounted for almost all of the return from the public market for the venture capital, the nascent craft scale venture capital industry of the 1970s. It was the ERISA law coinciding with the return of the IPO market. So that by 1990, there's an old line, never confuse genius with a bull market. Everyone who had invested in venture in 1979, 80, 81, and particularly in the two nascent industries, the PC in IT and biotech following Genentech, everyone was a genius. And that's when the money started flowing in. Well, and you point out in the book that the returns to venture capital aren't really all that great, certainly post-internet.com bubble. And in fact, when you compare it to what you could earn in the 
public markets. It's downright disappointing. And, and yet the amounts that get plowed into this sector keep getting uh, bigger and, and, and bigger. What's going on here? Part of it could be appetite for tail and so forth. But I think part of your story is that there is a almost irrational appetite for this type of innovative investment and that the kind of calculations that would normally go into a project under the roof of a large industrial corporation, this is not the sort of calculation that's going on. And if that's true, then presumably, even if there's an enormous amount of value that's being created through this creative disruption, very little of it is actually captured by the folks that are initiating it. First, I think you really have to speak in terms of and think in terms of of distinct regimes, distinct financial economic regimes. The world of the bubble of the late 1990s was unique. People made tons of money from investing in things that had no plausible business model, no path towards positive cash flow from operations. We can come back to that mantra. You then had this 10-year death of venture capital where the the buyout boom took off again. But whereas the buyout boom, which had shown the same kind of both skew and persistence of returns, persistence has disappeared over the last 20 years because all buyout deals are run through auctions, winner's curse dominates. But remember that first statistical stylized fact of venture capital, the enormous skew in returns. It goes with persistence. What it says to the intelligent want to be limited partner, be very wary. You want to invest in the funds that don't need your money. The ones that need your money are the ones you don't want to invest in. But you have big institutions. You have enormous pools of capital where a trivial yield enhancing allocation to venture capital can represent two, three billion dollars a year. That's been particularly true of the state pension funds, by the way. Whereas the university endowments that have been investing in venture capital for 40 or 50 years have privileged access, grandfathered in to those persistently successful venture firms, the state funds, not so much, particularly when they have to have sunshine laws that reveal what's going on. Definitely not the county funds. <laughs> yeah. Now, that's one factor. But over the last 10 years, and, and, and just in terms of the profile, the historical profile, vintage 1990, order of magnitude, five US billion a year in 1990 dollars. So multiply that by two and a half to three times. Five billion a year is going into the entire membership of the National Venture Capital Association. 10 years later, 100 billion went in at the top of the bubble. And of course, most of that money was lost or did not generate positive return. There's then a big pullback in the amount of money going in to venture capital firms, which then in the aftermath of the global financial crisis begins to recover. And by 2017, 18, is getting back up into 40, 50 billion a year. But now something else is going on because now we're in a fundamentally new financial regime which has persisted for almost a dozen years. And that is the regime of negative 
real risk-free rates of interest of a industrial investment grade bond trading at zero to one percent at investors who are desperate for return. And so in the same year when we had order of magnitude 50 to 60 billion going into venture capital funds, the deals, the money raised by venture capital backed firms exceeded 100 billion. The money was coming from what the NBCA calls non-traditional investors. In one of their publications, they probably got whacked for this. They called them tourists, mutual funds, hedge funds, sovereign wealth funds, public market investors who were buying illiquidity at premium valuations. This is the FOMO phenomenon overlaid by the need, the, the reach for yield. And with no experience, these institutions with no knowledge or experience of governance of entrepreneurial companies. Now, very smart, experienced, successful venture capitalists, when people are offering you money that essentially is free in terms of the amount of dilution you have to accept and saying they, they don't want to be on the board because if the company ever goes public, they want to be able to distribute or sell the stock. It's perfectly rational to take the money. It did come with a radical lowering of governance by even the most professional venture capitalists. And that's where you get saying, well, if the founders of Google were grandfathered in to control of the company, no matter how much money they raised, if the founder of Facebook was grandfathered in, maybe the only way we can compete is to be, quote, investor friendly. In other words, give up, abandon what once was known as the venture capital golden rule. He who has the gold sets the rules. And so you have the phenomenon of one of the best, absolutely best venture capital firms in the United States, in the world. Two of their partners each basically having to go to court to force out the founder whom they had not only backed initially, but who had raised enormous amounts of money while still retaining complete control. I'm referring to Uber and, and so Founder friendly, yeah. So there now is a momentum in this investing. This is obviously I'm talking about what we can loosely refer to as the unicorn bubble. In my view, the unicorn bubble is as good as that new dot plot chart of the Federal Reserve remains irrelevant. And that it's not when, as Keynes would say, it's not the reality that transforms markets, it's the change in expectation. As and when market sentiment coalesces around the notion that we are going to have real positive rates of interest, credit spreads, time spreads are all going to move up. That will shift the terms of trade in the venture business radically. And the fundamentals, as um, Julie Wilson put it in Casablanca, the fundamental things will again apply and positive cash flow from operations, or at least a path there too will be a very important selling point for raising venture capital money. But I think when you talk about bubbles, your perspective on bubbles is quite nuanced, right? And when you go back to the dot-com bubble, a lot of the companies that, that you invested in 
subsequently declined along with all the other companies at the time. And yet your view is that these equity bubbles, and I don't just mean the dot-com bubble, I don't just mean the unicorn bubble you just referenced, but you know, if we go back in time and look at, there was a bicycle bubble and there was a railroad bubble and you know, there were a bunch of other technology-driven bubbles that at the end of the day, you argue there's not a lot of wreckage left behind. There's not a lot of impact on, on the real economy. There's not a lot of devastation precisely because they're not debt-driven. And you contrast this with the, the 2008 global financial crisis, which was quite devastating because it was built on debt. I like to say um, one of my lectures at Cambridge is called Bubbles Are Banal, and it's followed by Bubbles Are Necessary. Bubbles are banal in that where, as I say, whenever you have a market in assets, a trading market in assets, you will find bubble behavior, momentum investing, hurting behavior. You go back and, and look at the history of the London Stock Exchange from the end of the Napoleonic Wars through to the First World War, when it was the dominant capital market for the world. A decade doesn't go by without some kind of mania, often completely unrelated. The one that originated the Bank of England's role as lender of last resort was over silver mines in Central America when the Spanish Empire finally collapsed. And the, the local banks in, in Britain thought, my God, we don't have to just get two or 3% lending to the local industrialists or the local farmers who are improving their land. We can lend to Nicaragua and get 20% or at least 12%. And it almost brought the city of London down and the Duke of Wellington, prime minister, as it happened, had the authority to tell the Bank of England, which was a private profit-making institution, you're going to lend the money necessary to save the world. You're going to become the lender of last resort. But bubbles are banal. Bubbles are ubiquitous, but not all bubbles are the same. And as I say, I, I, I look at it along two different dimensions. Where's the bubble taking place? Is it in the highly leveraged credit markets, the banking system, or is it in the relatively unleveraged equity market? And then what's the focus of speculation? Is it existing assets, houses above all? Is it assets that you're developing but have no potential for increasing, moving out the productivity frontier? Gold mines, for example, repeated bubbles from the 48ers in San Francisco to the Rand Lords of South Africa 50 years later? Or is it one of those technologies like railroads, like electrification, like the internet, which deployed at scale when capital is mobilized far beyond the scale that private profit-seeking companies could dare or afford to invest it changes everything. It creates a new economy. That's the productive bubble. And we've had, depending on how you count, four or five examples of this. In 1931, at um, giving a lecture at Chicago, of all places, Keynes looked back on the late 1920s, 1925, up until the stock market crash, and reflected that this was an enormously productive time. The investment in the new technology radically reduced the cost of commodity production and transportation, radically increased the productivity of manufacturing through electrification. It was a productive bubble. So that 
is indeed a nuanced view of bubbles. And it says that what the, the central bank should be concerned with is not so much the performance of stock prices, it's the amount of leverage. That's what should have got the Fed moving in 2006-7 as the credit-funded housing bubble leveraged unimaginably by the implementation of the novel intellectual gift of modern finance theory and the computerization that could operationalize it into the endless layers of derivatives. By the way, I couldn't agree with you more about the manner in which uh, theory can transform markets. And one of my good friends in a book and a person I revere is Donald McKenzie's An Engine, Not a Camera, how modern finance theory wasn't a camera for reproducing how the financial markets work. It was an engine for transforming how they work. Of course, it took computers to operationalize it. Yeah, and I thought you had some great comments on the Arrow Debrew model and, and how it was misinterpreted, right? And it was meant to be sort of a theoretical construct, and it was mistaken for a description. Ken Arrow was never unaware that what he and Gerard Debrew had done was produce a existence disproof of the possibility of a general equilibrium. If you had to have an infinite array of markets in which you could, in fact, buy insurance against every infinitely possible state of the world, well, markets could never be complete. And if it took complete markets to create a general equilibrium, you could never have a general equilibrium. I got that on first reading. Yeah, Medigliani and Miller, all of these are misinterpreted. Coast theorem, right? Everybody misinterprets the... Uh... I had a wonderful exercise writing a paper for Hyminsky 20 years ago. I lie, almost 30 years ago. It happened that Miller got the Nobel Prize in economics in the same week that Mike Milken went to jail. So the paper was about that the right-hand side of the balance sheet really does matter. (laughs) There's a cost from going from debt to equity. Of course, a special cost when the debt has been raised illegitimately by the violation of the law. But I, Miller Medigliani, again, is one of those, you know, it's one of those models where, in a way, like the, sol- the solo growth model and the application of the neoclassical production function to the economics of growth, it's educational because of what it leaves out. And it was Solo himself who participated in determining that by increasing labor and increasing capital, you could explain no more than about a third of observed historical economic growth. So it was what was missing. It was the technology that was missing that motivated Paul Romer and Philippe Aguillon. Aguillon should have shared the Nobel Prize. And you mentioned Schumpeter. He's devoted 30 years of his life to building out and training an enormous array of, if you like, new economists in the Schumpeterian model, the model of creative destruction. I strongly recommend his new book, which is very accessible, no math, his new book on creative destruction. Uh, But that was all motivated because of what was not in the original neoclassical growth model. You mentioned that waste is necessary, and but you make a distinction. At the innovation frontier. I don't encourage waste for its own sake, but if progress is made by trial and error, there are going to be a lot of errors. Yeah, and you make the distinction between Keynesian waste and, and Schumpeterian waste. 
I got into a lot of trouble with Bob Skidelsky because he thought that my term Keynesian waste would be used against Keynes and against the economics of Keynes. And of course, what I meant was at the macro level, unused resources because of austerity, because of paralysis of the state in responding to inadequate aggregate demand is utter waste with no redeeming feature, which actually feeds back to reduce productivity. That's the bad kind of waste. As workers lose their skills and machines rust and innovation, investment in risky R&D is reduced in order to try to survive. But Schumpeterian waste is the positive. That's the necessary waste that goes with innovating at the frontier. Right now, you, you, you talk about how one of the fallacies is to think that the financial markets and the real economy don't relate. But there's another fallacy, which is about minimizing the role of the state and the impact of the state, whether it takes the form of Ricardian equivalence or whether it takes the, the, the form of ignoring the massive amount of investment that governments have to make in primary research. What motivates this? What's driving this kind of you mentioned sort of a libertarian streak that some folks have. In- There's a legitimate basis for criticizing the economic role of government, which is that it always comes with at least some reality and a lot more risk of reciprocal rent seeking between public sector and private sector actors, variously expressed through terms like regulatory capture or corruption, bribery. So a kind of naive celebration of the mission-driven state without taking account and being very aware of the potential for risk and corruption is for rent-seeking and corruption is self-defeating. It's absolutely self-defeating. What's motivated, what, what has had to overcome that, that reinforces that, and, and of course, the great right-wing political economist who drove this was James Buchanan, but it aligned with efficient market thinking. So it became a kind of abstract framing with enough historical reality so that Reagan could make his notorious remark about the most frightening words you can hear and that government is not the solution, government is the problem. All you have to do is observe the last 500 years, and it's 500 years of economic history, to understand that notwithstanding what I called in my book, or what I call in my lectures, the corruption tax, that is as inescapable as Schumpeterian weight, the corruption tax, which comes with an economically active state. You also have the outcomes that are monotonically up and to the right. So Friedrich List, the great German economist of the 19th century, the author of the National System of of Political Economy, and in fact, the author of the model, which every follower nation, beginning with Britain, and then the United States, and then Japan, and then Korea, and then China has followed the model of, on the one hand, protection against to protect infant industries so they can grow to compete internationally. And on the other hand, 
support one way or another those infant industries, especially to see them become globally competitive in export markets. A great line in which he says that if, if the English had left the economy, had left laissez-faire to run wild, England would remain the sheepyard of the Hanseatic League, selling wool to Flanders and buying it back in high-value textiles. But in the 17th century, this is why I say it's 500 years, uh, both Cromwell and then the restored monarchy and the parliament, the post-1688 monarch, had what were called navigation acts that required goods moving out of Britain to move out in, in British ships, which subsidized the construction both of the Royal Navy on the one hand and on the other hand of a, the, the biggest, the best shipbuilding industry in the world. And the Royal Navy then became the basis for the British Empire, which subsidized the Industrial Revolution, both through access to resources, but above all, through the profits generated by the slaves working in the Caribbean and after and before, seven, before 1787 in the United States. But in any case, national development and national security have been the two overriding, legitimizing political missions from when federal government subsidized the corrupt promoters of the transcontinental railways in the mid-19th century through DARPA and the Defense Department accelerating the digital revolution. My, my open question, and I try to end every talk, every conversation on these subjects that I have, and I hope to get this in right now, the great thing about climate change is that it offers the potential for effective political entrepreneurs to fashion a legitimizing mission for massive investment in the next generation, the next revolution's infrastructure and jobs. I love it when Biden says, when I hear climate change, I hear jobs. And this time, without killing anybody, without killing indigenous populations in the American West, without killing Germans and Japanese, and Americans being killed in return, Russians, of course, in much larger scale. But the notion of an existential mission that legitimizes partial suspension of cost-benefit analysis, legitimizes Schumpeterian waste at the frontier, legitimizes the elimination of Keynesian waste through public investment that will carry over and beyond and across the private sector. That's the promise and potential of what nobody wants to call the Green New Deal anymore. But I have to say, I think that was an inspired brand exercise in branding by the friends of AOC two years ago. Well, Bill, you're, you're a lot more optimistic than I am because I think we just went through the last year and a half a uh, perfect opportunity for a unified approach to something. And I don't think we, we got much out of it. So I think we could have rallied behind a, an initiative to reform healthcare, to reform all sorts of aspects. And yet most of the changes that have come out of this coronavirus crisis, and, and there have been enormous changes, have all been motivated primarily by private investment, right? All of the digital transformation that we've seen. Actually, I, I, I don't agree with that at all. I think that what the most important thing that's come out of the pandemic are the advanced purchase agreements that radically accelerated 
the development of the vaccines. This is a throwback to the golden post-war era of DOD, but concentrated in a much narrower front, but again with a very targeted return that transcended any kind of economic calculus. Sure, but vaccine development's very, don't you think that's a relatively very narrow sector? I'm saying the model is what's generalizable. Apply that to grid-scale energy storage. Mobilize the procurement functions of the public sector to provide the market, to reduce the market risk for the private sector. That's what DOD did in the early days of the digital revolution, and that's what just occurred. It's what the NIH did in the early days of biotechnology. I ceased being a biotechnology investor when I joined Warburg Pincus because they were already active in the field and focused exclusively on IT. But frankly, the first company I'm really proud of having played a role in constructing was a company called, of all things, Life Technologies. And it began with a company that was making the tools for genetic engineering and whose lead customer was the National Institutes for Health and which pulled that whole industry down a learning curve very rapidly and became a vehicle, it became the way in which venture capital could then come in and supplement upstream research with midstream and downstream commercialization. Well, last question. Do you think that, you know, you talk about you don't use the term irrational exuberance, but you do talk about the, the forces that kind of create bubbles in different industries. Can that spirit of enthusiasm and optimism replace to some degree the need for a centralized governmental investment? We know that externalities are created whenever investment takes place, whether it's governmental investment in primary research or whether it's the kind of investment that, that you've been doing throughout your career in development of new industries, new infrastructure, and so forth. Are those, to some extent, substitutes for one another, or are they complements? No, they're complements. I think they're complements. I think that, well, look, consider what's going on in the winging, swinging, wild west world of crypto and blockchain, and put it again, as you have so rightly emphasized the need for, put it again in a historical context. We have an innovative technology, clearly. We have an opportunity for an enormous array, an unimaginably broad array of applications. But we do know that if these applications are to become strategically significant, like every previous substantial financial innovation, they will bring with them two requirements. One is for regulation of how and what they're being used for. And the other, quite distinct, also complementary, a liquidity provider, not necessarily a lender, a, a liquidity provider of last resort. There are some of the pioneers in the crypto world who get that and are actively trying to work with one set or other of regulators. I think they're now getting a little concerned about the central banks saying, that's a great idea. Maybe we ought to do it and creating central bank digital currencies. But to the extent that the crypto movement is motivated by the libertarian vision 
of a financial system without regulation, anonymized completely, peer-to-peer, with no interaction, forget about it. Never happened. And what we've got are a set of assets of extreme high volatility, ownership of which is highly concentrated, and which have been repeatedly hacked. Doesn't mean that, by the way, that the underlying technology won't become, if you like, civilized, I mean, literally brought into the realm of civil society, though it seems most likely to be in automating and making more resilient and robust transactions amongst regulated players like clearing houses and the banks that participate in them that are extremely well known to each other, that are what are known as permissioned blockchain networks, and which are the opposite of the libertarian vision. But that irony would not be not be the first time that sort of irony emerged out of the dynamics of the innovation economy. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right there. Maybe food for another conversation, but I just want to remind everybody, Doing Capitalism in the Innovation Economy, it's really a, a fantastic book. And Bill, you've been uh, kind of a, a legend in uh, the investment world and also a great thinker about these economic issues. And so I'm so glad you're able to finally get a position where you can synthesize your economics and your history and your political science. And I think you call for a new political economy and a new financial economics. And I think you're contributing to both. So thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Greg. Thanks very much. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.